Father, I pray that your spirit would hover over us this morning, and we know that you're in us, and we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see beauty in your word, the beauty of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be able to see him with the eyes of our heart, that they would be open, that we would know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your saints and your incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of your mighty strength, which you exerted in Christ Jesus when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given on this earth or in the life to come. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you that you're here with us, and we pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Missed you guys last week. It was a good week off uh, for us. Enjoyed some good time together with the family, uh, but it's good to be back here this morning, and we're continuing through Romans chapter 8. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 30. Uh, I know Matt touched on uh, 26 and 27 a little bit. Originally, the text that I was assigned was, um, was uh, uh, 28, 29, and 30, but I wanted to go back and take another look at 26 and 27 because it so uh, melts together and is important in understanding um, verses 27, 28, and tw- or, I'm sorry, 28, 29, and 30 as well too. And so that's what I'm going to read, and then we will get into it. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26, says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Please pray with me one more time. Father, again, help us, please. Open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, There is a story in the Gospels um, that is a pretty well-known story, if you're familiar with the Gospels, usually referred to as the Transfiguration. Uh, Let me read it for you briefly here in Mark chapter 9. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them high up on the mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud that said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And this, this story that's referred to as the Transfiguration and is, and is fairly well known. Jesus takes the, a few of the disciples up on the mountain. And what you have, essentially, is this manifestation of divine interaction between these members of the Trinity. Primarily the Father and the sun, and something supernatural happens, and Jesus' clothes become radiantly white, and the disciples are terrified, but in typical Peter-like fashion, <coughs> excuse me, he feels the need to say something, when really nothing needed to be, to be said. Um, but he, again, in pip, tip, typical Peter-like fashion, and as we often do, we, we find a way to insert ourselves into these holy moments um, when really we should just be quiet and take it in. And I very much feel that way this morning as we look at the verses that I just read in Romans 8, 26 through 30. Because what you have in this passage this morning is again a description of divine interaction between two members of the Trinity. Not so much the Father and the Son as in the transfiguration, 
but between the Father and the Spirit. And the way that they interact. And it is truly holy ground. And I pray that we will not insert ourselves into this passage this morning. I was telling the, the interns on Friday, like, as we were going over this passage, and, you know, Brad is preaching out west today, and we are just talking a little bit about it, and it's like, I just want us so badly, like, can we, and I'm saying even for myself, like, can we please, just as we look at this this morning, try not to think about us. Please. I'm telling you, there is, there is gloriously good news here. Like, unbelievably good news that will affect your life, that has the power to radically change your life, whether you know Jesus Christ or not. I pray that you would come to know him this morning, that it would radically change your life. But even if you've been in Christ for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, understanding what's here this morning will radically change you. But folks, if we want to grasp it, if we want to take in this, this holy moment, this divine interaction, let's just get ourselves out of it. We come and we read our own presuppositions and our own desires and you know, our own mindsets so much into these texts and it's just like Peter saying stuff that what doesn't need to be said. The interaction between the Trinity is truly amazing and, uh, and I just want to try to do my best to explain it this morning. Um, and so to do that, just kind of four movements through the text. Talk about the Spirit's help, the Spirit's heart, and then the Father's promise and the Father's purpose. The Spirit's help, the Spirit's heart, the Father's promise, and the Father's purpose. First of all, the Spirit's help. <laughs> Notice these verse words again. And again, I said, like, let's not think about ourselves, but how, glo- I mean, how good is our God? Likewise, the Spirit helps who? He helps us in our weakness. <laughs> and again, it, it, the, the, little, the wor- little words there in, in the Greek, um, in our, th- those aren't in the original language. And so it literally just reads, the Spirit helps our weakness. Um, in our can kind of make it sound like we're strong sometimes and then we're weak sometimes. And in our moments of weakness, that's when he helps us. Folks, we're weak all the time. <laughs> we're weak all the time. And it literally just reads, the Spirit helps our weakness. Now, what type of weakness is he talking about here specifically? Because we've got a lot of weakness, amen? We've got a lot of weakness. What weakness is he talking about? Well, all of it, but specifically here this morning, the weaknesses he's talking about, verse 26, is that we don't know how to pray as we ought. What a glorious little phrase, amen? Have you ever felt like you don't know what to do or and that you don't even know how to pray about what you don't know what to do? Welcome to the Christian life. I mean, how awesome is this? We don't know what to pray for as we ought. If you've ever felt that, that's a mark of being a Christian. Is that we're not always going to know how to pray. So let that both affirm those feelings that you may have had and also free you from any condemnation that maybe you felt because of it. Um, But the Spirit is helping us in our weakness, and our weakness is that we don't even know how to pray, but what does he do? He intercedes for us. He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Now, it's, it's literally here, that, that little, again, the little English phrase here, too deep for words, it's one Greek word, and it literally means wordless or utterless, so it's kind of like a little bit of an oxymoron, but, but he, the Spirit is groaning in us by way of intercession with wordless groanings. In other words, we don't hear them. Sometimes people take this verse here and they say that the Spirit, like we're going to be groaning in the Spirit. Well, it's literally something that is not uttered. The word literally means wordless or, or utterless. Now, going back just a few verses, you'll see that it says that the creation groans. Uh, uh, back in verse 22, the creation is groaning. It says that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, in verse 23, we groan inwardly. But now here you have the Spirit groaning. Creation is groaning because of sin. We are groaning because of sin. And the Spirit is in us and is groaning. How good is our God, that very God of very God, the Holy Spirit, comes in us to identify with us and to groan. We, we talked a couple weeks ago. In fact, there's actually some 
little bit of debate on this, some commentaries, but because of the context of creation groaning and then, uh, and then us groaning, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, some people I think get a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that God the Spirit might groan. Does God really groan? But we looked a couple weeks ago at the fact that when Jesus was here on this earth and Jesus was God and Jesus groaned, it says that he, he uttered loud cries with tears to the one who was able to save him. And he was heard because of his piety. That when he, was, when he was in the garden, you remember that he prayed so intensely. And again, it doesn't, say that, it doesn't necessarily use the word groaned. But it says that he sweat drops of blood. As God here to take on our sin. To identify with us in our brokenness. And so now Jesus, the Son, has gone back up to heaven. But the Spirit is now in us. Jesus said he would not leave us alone. He would not leave us as orphans. Because we can never be left alone. Because if even for one millisecond, we as, as believers were left alone, we would fall. But God has made certain that that will not be the case. That Jesus comes as one type of paraclete, helper, to walk with us. The Spirit now comes since Jesus leaves. And is seated at the Father's right hand to be with us and to help us. And he's interceding through us. And he alone knows how to intercede according to the will of God. And how many, again, in, in prayer, guys, following Jesus, it's, it's I've said this so many times, um, it's very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult. But it's not always complicated either. Is that we need to throw ourselves upon him again and again and again. It is our weakness, throwing ourselves upon his omnipotence, upon his power. But we don't know how to pray. Do, do we pray for deliverance or for perseverance? For healing or for holiness? Um, to, you know, for, for provision or for patience? Should we stay or should we go? Should we wait or should we act? Should we keep quiet or should we speak up? We, always, we find ourselves in these situations and being like Jesus, it's not always cut and dry, but the Spirit knows how to pray in us. And he's interceding for us to form us into the image of Christ, as we're going uh, to look at here. This idea of interceding, not just this idea, but this, this word for interceding, it's, um, it's literally a Greek word that means to go out of your way to meet somebody. You know, like right now in our lives, uh, we, you know, we got four boys and it's just constant running, you know, open soccer, open gyms, lifting, jobs, work, friends, fishing, like we're just constantly going. And... Uh, and sometimes, you know, the boys want to, want to do something else, and we're like, well, you know, we can if it's like on the way, like to what, to what we're doing. Like if it's convenient, that then, you know, maybe we can stop in there or go there if it's kind of en route to where we're already going. But the idea here of intercession isn't the idea of just kind of being on the way. It's the idea of going out of your way. Is that intercession is the idea of going out of your way to ask for help, to plead for assistance. And then, especially with the word intercession here, that's used uh, here of the Spirit, um, it's the root word for intercede, but like if you look ahead, just to jump a ahead a little bit next week, um, to verse 34, it talks about how Jesus Christ is always interceding for us. And that's the idea here of going out of your way. But this, this word for intercession here that's used of the Spirit isn't just the word for going out of your way, but then it has this prefix on it, uh, the Greek prefix hooper, it's where we get the word hyper. So he's, he's hyper going out of his way. He's really going out of his way to, to groan in us, to bring about in us God's will, you see. And so the Spirit is constantly at work. I want to tell you something, Christian. You might think that God is not doing much in your life. You might think that the Spirit is not doing much in your life. I'm telling you, nothing could be farther from the truth. He's continually interceding in you. You have an advocate in heaven. We'll look at this next week, Jesus the Son at the Father's right hand interceding in heaven, but we need so much intercession, we also have an advocate here on earth interceding in us. Jesus interceding in heaven, the Spirit interceding here on earth. In the Old Testament, um, the job of priests was to make intercession with sacrifices, and that wasn't just like a once a year thing or once a month thing or even just a once a week thing. It was a daily thing in the temple. Daily interceding. Why? Because people were constantly sinning. Why is the Father, or why is the Son, rather, always in heaven before the Father interceding? Why is the Spirit in us interceding? Because we need it. But again, He is going to see us through to the end. Um, and this idea here, again, of 
of the Spirit, being willing to humble himself, just like Jesus humbled himself, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. It says in Philippians chapter 2, in the same way the Spirit comes and he humbles himself to be in us, to form us into the image of Christ and to groan with us. Again, looking back at this idea of groaning a few verses earlier that that it says that the creation is groaning like in the pains of childbirth. So you have the imagery of a woman giving birth. Then you have the idea of us groaning as believers who even have the first fruits of the Spirit. And it says, um, longing for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, So you've got this imagery of a woman about to give birth, this idea of an orphan who knows he's going to be adopted but is waiting to come fully kind of into his family. And then you have this idea of the Spirit groaning, longing to make an unholy people like Jesus. It's what he's doing in us. And just as an orphan longs for that family, just as a woman longs to give birth with groaning, so the Holy Spirit is longing in us to make us like Jesus, and he will not fail. He will not fail. He's bringing it about. And again, those, 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 those images, I think there's something important here to, so I was meditating upon this this past week, to point out this idea of, of, of groaning. Sometimes I, I just feel like we talk about it not quite, not quite right. Again, that, that image of a woman giving birth, it's, you know, when they give birth and, you know, they go, in, they go into labor, it's, it's painful. But they're not laboring for something that's, that's just going to come like 20 years from now. It's, it's, it's right there. The baby's right there. It wants, it wants to come out. So there's, there's a process. The, 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 the orphan that knows that they're going to be adopted, like it's, 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 it's coming. They're just waiting to, to come into their family. It's, it's right there. And, and my point is simply that, that the hope that we experience, it is, it is not just a hopeless groan. It is a hope-filled groan. That what we're longing for is just right around the corner, folks. Just a few short years. The Bible describes this life as a vapor. Just a few short years and we will be with him. Remember what I said at the beginning, like we gotta get our we gotta get us out of this. We gotta get our perspective, we gotta get our mindset out of this if we want to understand this rightly. Where the world and the message of the world tells us that it's all about the here and now and make the most of the here and now because this is gonna last forever. I mean, there's some dude on YouTube right now. I just see he's been popping up in my YouTube feed that's doing all this health and wellness stuff, and he's like doing like what is it like red light therapy and sauna and cold, cold baths and eating really good and you know, all this different stuff. And 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 here's what they say. They say he's actually reverse aging. Can I just tell you that's a lie? That is not true. It's absolutely not true. But we think it's all about the here and now. We think, we think we can make it happen. But, but that's for the Christian, right? We've got to live in light of eternity. Just a few short years, brothers and sisters. And we will be with him. Satan, sin, death, suffering, divorce, destruction, wickedness, abuse, child slavery, sex slavery. It will all be gone. In just a few short years, and we groan for it. And so the, the, the emphasis here, again, is to take this short little life that we've got, this little vapor of a life, and to live all in, 100%, for Jesus, that he might receive the honor and the glory that he's due. And I know that it's difficult, and I know that it's hard, and I know that we feel like giving up, but it's why the Bible exhorts us, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good, brother, sister. Some of you this morning, you are laboring in doing good, and if you get in the battle, it is difficult, amen? It's hard. It's not easy. But in just a few short years, we're going to see him. And the Spirit is in us to help bring this about. Now, it says that he, he intercedes for us. And verse 27, again, this interaction between members of the Trinity. He who searches hearts, that's a description of God the Father. He who searches hearts 
knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. So get the imagery. Why does Paul put that little phrase in there? He who searches hearts. It is God the Father. I don't have time to run through all the scriptures, but it's absolutely God the Father. Psalm 139 alone is enough proof that God searches our hearts. And, And think about, again, if you don't have the rest of the verse or even the rest of the sentence, just that little phrase, he who searches hearts, think about how terrifying this is, apart from the gospel, apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and apart from the interceding work of the Holy Spirit. It's terrifying for me to think about it apart from, apart from the gospel. That he who searches hearts, that God the Father knows Every dark intent of Eric Miller's heart. He doesn't just know what I do that is wrong. He knows why I do what I do, even the things that seem to be good. That, that song we sang earlier, um, your, your Will Be Done, that's been like on my Spotify playlist for the last couple months, just like on repeat. And the first line of the song almost brings me to tears every time. Your will be done, my God and Father, As in heaven, so on earth, my heart is drawn to self-exalting. Let me seek your kingdom first. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from his shed blood, apart from his grace in calling us to himself, apart from the interceding work of the Holy Spirit, that is the only thing that he who searches hearts would find. What he would find is self-exalting. But, As he searches our hearts, even those of us who are redeemed, he finds something else there. He finds the Holy Spirit interceding for us with wordless groans to do what? To bring us into accordance with the will of God. I'm I'm telling you, folks, we're just not nearly as amazed at our salvation as we should be. We, we think it's just this, like, and, and it is simple for us, for our response. It's part of what makes it the good news. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You trust in him. You call upon the name of the Lord. You will be saved. So for us, it's simple. But for what, what God did, it's, it's extremely complex. And not just complex, but it's, his, it's the working of his power to uphold us and to bring us all the way through to the end. So the Spirit's help here is something that we often overlook, but he is working to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. As we'll see now, I kind of mentioned this already, but I talk about the Spirit's help. Here's the Spirit's heart. I kind of already mentioned it. It's that the Spirit's heart is to do the will of God. And I won't spend a ton of time on this, but again, the end of verse 27, the, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's all I want to point out. Number one, the Spirit is not doing his own thing. The Spirit is doing the Father's thing. Just as when Jesus came to earth and when Jesus met with him on the Mount of Transfiguration his entire life here here on earth, like in John chapter 6, Jesus says to them, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have... But I have said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, for whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Listen, then he says this in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said that. In the same way, you see the Spirit here, not coming to do his own will, but to do the Father's will. That's point number one uh, here underneath the Spirit's heart. But here's, here's the other implication is that the Spirit isn't just doing his own thing, he's doing the Father's thing. By implication, what this means is when the Spirit's interceding for you, he's also not doing your thing. He's not doing my thing. He's doing the Father's thing. (coughs) Because the Father's thing is best, amen? We'll get to that here in just a second. So the Spirit's help and the Spirit's heart now you see how these, these, these move together. And again, I'll try to take time here as we, as we go on to show you how this, how this works together. But first of all, the Father's promise. And then the Father's purpose. The Father's promise, verse 28. Verse 28, probably one of the most well-known, most frequently quoted, most all-encompassing promises in all of the Bible. It is a pillow on which we can rest our weary heads. Um, it is good. It is awesome. And it should be quoted a lot because it is such unbelievably good news. And yet I don't even think we fully understand the really 
great, I'm struggling for words right now, the really great awesomeness of it. Um, and so let's just walk through this and break it down. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. First of all, we know. Notice how the we know is set in contrast to verse 26 of what we don't know. So we don't always know how to pray as we ought. But what can you know when you don't know a lot, when you don't know what to pray? Here's what you can know. You can know that God is working all things together for good. That's what he's doing. And so just because we don't always know what to pray does not mean that we can never know anything at all. Just as it would be foolish to say that we always know how to pray perfectly when the Bible clearly tells us that we don't know how to pray perfectly, in the same way it's foolish to say that we never have any idea at all about what God is doing because we clearly do know what God is doing. He's working all things together for good. That's what he's doing in our lives. And we know, and then the next little phrase, that for those who love God, who are these that love God? Because I think sometimes this is one of the reasons this verse is sometimes misunderstood. Pardon me. Um, that for those who love God, and we, and we think of those who love God as some sort of category of super-Christian, some sort of category of Christian that's been to Bible school or to seminary or been baptized with the Holy Spirit or goes on a lot of missions trips or is in full-time vocational ministry or has a, a ministry named after him or something like that. No, no, no. It, it's not a special subset of super-Christians. He qualifies it in the verse. Again, remember, context is always king. Okay, so go there when you have a question. So the question would be, and we know that for those who love God, and you're like, well, who's that? We'll just keep reading. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And then he says, end of verse 28, for those who are called according to his purpose. Who are those that love God? It's those that are simply called to believe in him. This isn't some sort of special calling to vocation. And I'll talk about this in just a second. It is the idea of an effectual call, all that the Lord Jesus has called to himself. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, that, that you, it's because you've been called to him. And that are those who love God. And so you have like kind of the earthly perspective and the heavenly perspective. From the earthly perspective, we are those who look up and who, and who love God. But from heaven, it is God who has called us to him. Again, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, and then John goes out of his way to say this little phrase just so we don't misunderstand it. He says, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And to this he called you through our gospel. Paul used the same language way back at the very beginning of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 6 and 7, uh, he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, and to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what we can know, um, that it's for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And what exactly is God doing? He is working all things together for good. Now, the good here. The question would be, what is, the, what is the good that he is talking about? Ultimately, I think in the context, because if you look at the last uh, word of verse 30 here, which, kind of, which is kind of where he's going, he's speaking of glory and being glorified. Um, someday with him in heaven, again, in just a few short years, we will be there. Uh, but the good, and so the good, generally speaking, that he's, he, that he's bringing about in our lives is that he's going to bring it all together in heaven, and we're going to look back, again, th this is kind of, hang with me here through kind of like, because when, when you begin to talk about time and eternity, you know, our minds have a hard time grasping it. But God has always existed. He's eternal. He exists outside of time. He created time. Our time is based on us on this little planet that revolves around this one little star out of billions and billions of not just stars but galaxies, and we're floating around it, and we mark days and months and years by, you know, the earth spinning and, you know, what's the orbit, and it's on its axis. I forget which is which. Anyway, but you get what I'm saying. That's how we mark time. God created all those things, and he exists. He exists outside of it. 
uh, somehow. And someday when we're with him in eternity, ourselves somehow outside of time, we're going to look for all of eternity, I believe we're never going to run out of, looking back on this finite, like, like all, of, all of world history, let's com- like that, let's say it's like that. That's all of world history there. But we're going to, for all of eternity, look back on the infinite amount of things that he did in this finite period of time, you understand? All that to say that, again, we don't think that God is doing a lot. Brothers and sisters, he's doing far more than you could ever possibly imagine. Um, Some of the guys that come to internship on Friday morning, several of them have their own business. And we were, I need to be careful here, they were not necessarily saying this, but somehow we got onto the this topic or idea in our discussion of, of how sometimes um, uh, employees, if you've ever been a boss and if you've ever been an employee, sometimes employees have the mindset that the boss or the owner, you're like, what do they do, right? They just kind of sit around and tell me what to do and count their money, right? And we were just kind of chuckling because if any of you have ever been in charge or had your own business or whatever, the owner is doing infinitely more than you could ever possibly imagine. They're doing so much behind, behind the scenes, things that we don't see. And in the same way, it's like we have the same attitude sometimes towards God. We're like, what's he doing? Where's he at? I'm working hard here. Like, what's he doing? Just sitting up. Oh, <laughs> doing so much more than we could ever possibly imagine. And we see here in this promise, this, here's what I want, want us to see now, is that he, he's not just making things up on the fly. Okay, He's not just flying by the seat of his pants. Because he exists out, outside of time, he's had a plan from before the foundation of the world to bring about his purposes. And he has the power to bring about his purposes in this thing called time and in human history, world history, because he's created it all. And so um, what you see here is that he's not flying by the seat of his pants, making it up as he goes or somehow playing chess, like responding to our moves and like, oh, that was a good move. What am I? Oh, but I got you here. Check, you know. No, no, that's not it at all. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And so just follow me here into verses 29 and 30. It says, for those whom he, and there's several words here that we'll we'll unpack. We've talked about these before, and the reason we've talked about them before is because they're not just here. They're all over the place in the Bible. But it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then he picks up kind of this chain here. In verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Is that God has always had a plan, and he's working it out. Let's start with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, this is very important. And again, people get all bent out of shape about these terms, some of these terms, um, especially in this passage, foreknowledge and predestination in other places, um, somewhat synonymous words but that go along with them, like election and chosen, things like that. They're all over the place in the Bible. Um, we insert our definitions onto this word especially all the time because we take foreknown and we go, oh, yeah, well, of course, God just looked down through the corridors of time and he looked at who would kind of choose them and so then he chose uh, at, at who would choose him and so he chose them and then he just kind of is responding to our will because he would never override our will. I, that is not what the Bible teaches. It's just not. Um, foreknowledge is the idea of him setting his love upon someone way before they ever even knew about him. In fact, I'll use this. This is... Uh, This is from the Moody uh, Bible Commentary. It says, foreknowledge means to determine ahead of time to enter into a loving relationship with someone. And please notice here that, again, if you just read it carefully, it never says, it does not say, and what he foreknew. It says, whom he foreknew. 
And the word, for, so two parts, for, meaning ahead of time, and new. And this idea, again, it's gnosko in the Greek, this idea of knowledge. It is not knowledge as in like two plus two equals four. It's not that type of knowledge. It is a relational knowledge as in Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. That's how it always speaks of it. And God, for ahead of time, before we ever existed, he set his love on us and knew us intimately. That's what it is saying. And again, it's not just God responding to it. I mean, let me give you some more Bible here. Um, it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that Jesus was foreknown, that God foreknew Jesus. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Did God just look down, and, oh, Jesus is going to come on the scene. Yeah, let me pick him. No. He, this, he's very God of very God. He, he was foreknown in the sense of loving relationship. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. You see, you see the apostles speaking like this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and he preaches this sermon, and is right at the beginning of it, but 3,000 people are about to respond and get saved because the Holy Spirit's going to pierce their hearts. It says they were cut to the heart. And Peter stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Listen, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Acts chapter 4, um, some of the apostles get arrested for preaching the gospel. They get threatened to not do this anymore. And they're like, well, we're going to obey God rather than you, so too bad. Um, then they gather together in a prayer meeting, and here's what they pray. Um, it says, they lifted their voice and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your servant, David, your servant, or through the, through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the apostles, and then here's what they pray, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is not up there playing chess, just simply responding to our moves. He has foreknown, he has predetermined everything in this little space called time and world history in which we live and in which our life is just a vapor. He exists outside of it. All things are from him and to him and through him and for him. And he is in control of all things. And before the beginning of time, again, the problem with this passage isn't just that it's difficult. It's that we cannot wrap our minds around it because of the amazing grace in it. Before the beginning of time, if you are in Christ, he set his love on you. He set his love on you. He foreknew you. And he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. We're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. And then, in the fullness of time, you guys know that I've often you know, shared my story. That I, remember, you know, I remember praying with my mom on my bed when I was little. I don't know, I was pretty little. Five or six to receive Jesus into my heart was as sincere as like a five or six-year-old can be about it. But then on one Sunday morning in July of 2000, I, I, again, I don't, both of those times, like I knew God was there, but like God awakened my heart. And in that moment, you're like, like what was that, Eric? That was you. you. You made the right decision. No, no, no. God in his grace, met me in sin and death, and he called me to himself. See, that's the way the Bible talks about it. We talk about it the way we talk about it, and sure we respond, sure we make a decision, sure we raise our hand, sure we ask for prayer, sure we pray a prayer, sure we walk in awe, whatever. But what that is, is that is God calling people to himself. This is always the way. Um, the Bible speaks of it because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. I, okay, so foreknowledge, predestined, just means to mark out ahead of time. 
We're going to come back here to talk about conformity to the image of his son, that he might be the first work among many brothers, but just look at the chain. And then he calls us. So he makes this plan beforehand. He sets his love on us. He makes the plan before the foundation of the world. He then, in real time, space, history, through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, calls us to himself. And when he calls us to himself, we believe. And in that moment that we believe, all those who call upon the name of the Lord, you are justified. We've talked at length about justification, so I won't go into a ton of it now, but we are declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And then, in almost kind of a, kind of a prophetic um, past tense, it says, and all those whom he justified, he also glorified. And again, you're like, well, glory is still future, yes, but he's speaking of it in the past tense on purpose so that we can know that it absolutely will come to pass. Because God is not stopped by anything that we could possibly do. Even when they tried to kill his son, they were actually fulfilling his divine plan that existed far before those wicked people ever existed, far before us wicked people ever existed. He is working out his plan in real time, space, history. Again, just very quickly, I, we could sit on this for a long time. I, in the doctrinal series last year, I believe it's on maybe the fourth one on salvation, I talked a lot more about these terms about election, predestination, choosing, foreknowledge, all these different things. But again, our little finite minds and from our perspective, and I understand why, but like we, 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 we think that this like robs us of meaning. Brother and sister, nothing, the exact opposite of tr- is true. Your life has great meaning, and the reason it has meaning is because God says it has meaning. He who predestines all things according to the purpose of his will says, your life matters, follow Jesus, believe in him, repent, turn, seek him, follow him, be a disciple, be a learner, be like him. And it matters because he has people through you that he has chosen to use you as a means of his grace in other people's lives to bring other people to saving faith. Just like the gospel didn't just come to you out of thin air, it came through somebody in the same way the gospel wants to come through you to other people. All this part of God's divine plan. It does not rob it of meaning. Every single wedding that I've ever been a part of has been predestined to happen and predetermined what would happen. And I'm saying just by man now, using this as a metaphor, you understand? Like I've never just shown up and like, oh, hey, you want to get married? Okay, yeah, let's do this. No, we, we actually rehearse it the night before. And okay, this is when it come down, and okay, dad, this is who gives this woman to be this, or who gives this woman to this man, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, we, we plan everything out. We know what song. We know like, at what, like, like 37 seconds into a certain song, we're gonna walk down. And yet, and yet every time we do it, it's never like, oh, this is all predestined to happen, so I mean, I don't even know why we even showed up today. The exact opposite. It was predetermined to happen, and in that moment, it is glorious. Absolutely glorious. And there's tears, and there's weeping, and there's vows, and there's promises, and there's a miracle happening. There's a union happening. And in the same way, all over the world today, guys, think about this. And I know our, in our little world, like things might be dark, they might be difficult. All over the world today, the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, through the faithfulness of God's people, he is still saving people. And he predestined it to happen today before the foundation of the world. And it's going to happen again tomorrow. And it's going to happen again the next day. And it's going to happen until Jesus comes back. And of that gospel, of that mission, we get to be a part. So this does not rob you of purpose. It does not mean that we should not act. It means that we can act with confidence and with hope and with certainty and with victory. Amen? Okay. I got to move on. Okay, it's past 11. Hey, just get comfortable. Take a breath. It's all right. I'm not done yet. All right? Um, The Father's promise, but again, all this, I've touched on this already, but the Father's purpose like, well, what's the point of all this here? Here it is. So notice the, notice the trail here, the interaction between the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Father. Is that the Father, and you got to kind of read it backwards, like reverse engineer the passage, but you'll see it. He foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. 
and he's working all things together for good. And it is this good that the Holy Spirit, remember, he's interceding for us according to the will of God. And what is the will of God? Those things that he had foreknown, the people he'd foreknown, the people he'd predestined, so on. And what is he doing in all those things? To this, to this end, this is the Father's purpose in this promise, is that we be conformed to the image of his Son. Now this is a two-fold purpose. This is just the first part. Here's the first Here's the first fold purpose, I guess, is that to be conformed to the image of Son. You that's not, does that need interpretation? He is wanting to make you like Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's what he foreknew you for and predestined to happen, and that is what the Spirit is now in your life interceding and groaning to bring about. This is what, this is, what is happening. And then, though, not only to be conformed to the image of his son, but then the purpose of conforming us to the image of his son is the second half of this, pur- of this purpose, is in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, the idea of firstborn here, it's not the idea of chronology, it's the idea of superiority, of preeminence. So when he speaks of being the firstborn, the firstborn was the, mo- the one that received the inheritance, that received the birthright, But again, because of Christ's grace, we are made co-heirs with Christ. We read earlier in this chapter a couple weeks ago. And so here's here's the whole point. Um, Is that we are conformed to the image of the Son, to the glory and honor of the Son. We are conformed to the image of the Son, to the glory and honor of the Son. This was the Father's ultimate purpose. To bring this about. And can I, and you're like, well, I don't know if that's cool or not. Let, let me ask you this what could be cooler? What could be better? Imagine a world where everyone is conformed to the image of the Son. Imagine a world where everyone is humble like Him. Imagine a world where everybody has mercy and compassion like him. Imagine a world where everybody is obedient to the Father's will like him, submissive to the Father's will like him. Imagine a world where people are willing to sacrifice like him. Imagine a world where people are willing to put others first like him. You're like, that would be heaven. Exactly. Exactly. That will be heaven. Is that there's going to be a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, each with their own, each with their own personality, and unique in being, and yet we will be conformed to the image and character of Christ. This is what the Father is working to bring about in your life right now. He is the firstborn among many brothers. One of the most popular parables probably that Jesus ever told was this parable of the prodigal son. Yet, um, And there's so much to glean from it. There's so much goodness. It's just oozing with goodness and grace and gospel truth, and yet, again, I think we misunderstand it a lot of times. Just very briefly, in Luke chapter 15, Luke sets up the story of Jesus telling this parable like this. He says, now, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives and eats with them. And then it says, so Jesus told them this Parable, singular, parable, one. But then he tells three. He says he told them this parable, but then he goes into this parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But it's all one parable. But here's the breakdown, and this is the main point that we usually miss, is that in the lost sheep, the shepherd goes and he seeks and he finds the sheep. The lost coin, the woman sweeps the house until she finds the coin. But the lost son, nobody goes after him. Nobody goes to seek him. And if you understand what Jesus, why he was telling this to these parable or to these Pharisees and scribes that were grumbling against the tax collectors and sinners, you remember in the story there's two sons. There's the older, there's the younger son that wanted nothing to do with the father and left him and wanted his share of the inheritance and basically said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. And he took it and he went. But the older son who in the story represents the Pharisees and the scribes, should have gone after him, but he never does. The shepherd seeks the sheep, the woman looks for the coin, but the older brother doesn't go after his younger brother. 
And the whole point of the parable is that Jesus comes as the better older brother, or to use the language here in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus comes as the better firstborn son to seek and save that which is lost. And the Father's will and the Father's plan and the Father's purpose in all of it is to conform us to the image of his Son in order that in everything Jesus Christ might be honored and glorified. Do you understand? And so, worship team, you can come up and we're going to close. This is what he's doing in your life, folks. You, you might be confused about what's happening, about what's going on. And it's very common and it's okay to not see how all the dots connect. But again, I just point you to the authority of the will of God, and I'm, or I'm sorry, the authority of the word of God and what I've tried to explain here this morning. I want you to understand that in whatever's happening in your life, good, bad, or ugly, suffering, and I didn't have time, to, like the whole context of this passage is suffering. That's why there's groaning. And it's suffering because of sin. I know what God's doing in your life. He's working to make you like Jesus. That's what he's doing. And please, I'm not just saying that, like I'm not saying that some sort of little good Christian thing. Please, I, like just right now, think about what's happening in your life. And right, don't be like, well, I, well, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. No, 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 for you. Think about what's happening in your life. If you have trusted Christ, it's because he's called you to himself. And what he's doing is he is working to make you like Jesus, to the glory and honor of Jesus. And if that's where you know he's going, you might have other plans, you might have other desires, you might have another will. As we sang this morning, not my will, but yours be done. That's where he's going. And please have hope. So Wednesday night, we, were, we looked at this passage at small church. And um, Marion Mast said something. We were over at Marion and Mary Ellen Mast House for small church, and um, Marion shared something uh, that he'd heard Alistair Begg say. And so I'm going to quote Marion, who is quoting Alistair Begg. Um, every time I quote Alistair Begg, I feel the need to speak in a Scottish accent. I'll try to refrain from doing so, unless you'd like me to. Um, but, he, but he just said this. He says, don't ask me what I feel. Don't ask me how I feel. But ask me what I know. Don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So please have hope this morning because that's what God is doing in your life. Father, thanks for today. We love you. We marvel at the infinite power and glory of your ways. We read passages and ideas within passages like this that we looked at this morning and we feel very small. But that's the way you've designed it to be. That we might not trust in ourselves and might look to you. And the Father, that's my prayer that right now, that as we stand and sing, I don't even know what song we're gonna sing or whatever it is, but like, no matter what words we might even be saying, I pray that the cry of our heart would be, Father, not my will, yours be done. Conform us to the image of the Son. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys stand with us.